This is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. And this last month of August passed, and we didn't spend any time thinking about the use of the atomic bomb. August the 6th, 1945, the U.S. Army Air Force dropped the first atomic weapon used against a hostile target on the city of Hiroshima in Japan. This was repeated on August the 9th on the city of Nagasaki. Japan had been at war with the U.S. since late 1941. In this month, uh, August 45, the Soviet Union also invaded the Japanese-held territory of northern China as it declared war on Japan. As the culmination of these factors, Japan sought an end to the war. By the time the bombs were dropped, there was a naval blockade around the home islands. The Soviet army was advancing rapidly against Japanese possessions, and the manufacture of war materials had just about seized in the country. After a series of battles with American forces, the Japanese Navy had almost ceased to exist. It appeared to many their position, the Japanese, was hopeless. The August bombing took the lives of about 100,000 civilians altogether through blast and fire. Many thousands more were mostly unknown, died later of the effects of nuclear fallout. The intensity of the bombing was heightened by the frightfulness of the explosive impact. It took one airplane each to deliver these bombs on those two cities. One plane, one bomb, amazing destruction. Part of the horror was imagining the scale of destruction. But it was the scale of intensity, not simply the amount of destruction. Already, American air power had killed many hundreds of thousands of Japanese civilians through aerial bombing, 100,000 alone in Tokyo in April of that same year. Virtually every major city in Japan had been attacked and burned to the ground. One of the challenges of the use of the atomic bombs was finding a city large enough to warrant its destructive potential. Those who advocated its use didn't want merely to bounce the rubble around and thereby frustrate its potential. They wanted to demonstrate the new power they had to destroy and to maim. And thus, these two cities, relatively unimportant to the war effort, were targeted. The bombs were dropped and the war ended. The case for their use seemed cut and dry. At least the justifications for their use were made by noting these two, two events together. Most of the time, these correlates are taught to us as the justifying reason for using such terrible weapons. More than anything, the war was ended and the potential destruction that may have resulted for its continuing was averted. The bombs were dropped and the Japanese government sued for peace. That was justification enough. But not quite. In the months up to August 1945, there had been a good deal of anxiety about the effects of American destructiveness already. Flying over the country and taking out its cities one by one was greeted by a great deal of queasiness on the part of many in the American command structure, and that went all the way to the top. The Army Air Force's officer in charge of the aerial effort there commented to his staff that, quote, we have to win the war or we'll all be hung as war criminals, unquote. At this point in the conflict, it was almost impossible to imagine losing the war 
So this American general was probably saying this more as a defensive gesture than as a true concern, but it reflected a serious moral misgiving about what was happening. Nobody knew if what they were doing was really the right thing. Of course, the U.S. had invested a gargantuan amount of money on the cutting-edge technology that brought this about. The largest and most expensive program of the entire U.S. war effort was harnessed, not to produce the atomic bomb, that was the second largest, but to produce the B-29 bomber, fleets of which were flying over Japan by this point to drop their bomb loads. And they kept up their bombing even after the rich military and industrial targets had mostly all been destroyed, or at least partly, because there was no other use for them. The combination of technologies that resulted in the atomic bombings in, 19, in August of 1945 brought about this culmination. American technology and American investment had produced a weapon with only one use. It was used, and the war came to an end. But the question of its legitimacy remained. Even as we have passed the 78th anniversary, it's not settled. Would the war have ended anyway? It's hard to see how it could have continued with Japan's military capacity diminished almost every day. But there's no guarantee. Even after the atomic attacks, when the Japanese emperor himself had decided the continuation of the war was fruitless, the Japanese army intervened to carry on with the war. It took the emperor's own staff to force the resisting army officers to forego their martial coup. Were the U.S. to continue its blockade, rather than have dropped the bomb, millions would have died of starvation. Had an invasion of the islands been mounted, it was estimated there'd be one million Allied casualties and some 10 million Japanese that would have been killed or wounded. So dropping the bomb saved lives in the cold calculus of war, maybe. But the use of the bomb unleashed the nuclear genie. After the war, when the dust had settled somewhat, the scientists and military experts who had helped to produce the bomb insisted they were no more than midwives to the birth of this new reality. It was nature, they said, that contained the explosive nuclear force that had killed so many. They merely looked to see what was there and then worked with what they had found. There was no one to blame for what was there. Choosing not to use it once it was discovered and calculated and molded wouldn't change the fact of its reality. And once the knowledge was gained, the light couldn't be quenched and pushed out into the dark and pushed back into the darkness of ignorance. Finding out the secrets of the atom made the bomb an inevitability. Using it didn't matter, they said. But it did matter. As soon as the first explosion took place, this new way of creating and using this power entered the arsenal of first one power and then another. It took only a few years before the Soviet Union had atomic weapons. And only a few years after that, the same exploratory process produced the even more destructive hydrogen bomb, which has no theoretical upper limit. Hydrogen bombs can be built to virtually any level of horror. These weapons still have their places in the arsenals of several countries. But even more pointedly, the pursuit of nuclear weapons produced nuclear programs in England, France, China, Israel, India, Pakistan, North Korea, Argentina, South Africa, and now the newest neighbor to take up the gauntlet, Iran. Not all of these countries produced weapons, but all of them were serious in trying to have them. It's genuinely frightening. This is our world. Hiroshima and Nagasaki are part of our irrevocable history. There's nothing to be done to change the fact of the existence of the nuclear arsenal and the threat it poses. 
Whatever might have been done differently or could have happened alternatively didn't happen. The bottle was uncorked and the gin popped out to wonder in our world. And when tensions mount, politicians in many parts of the world began talking about using the weapons they have to protect and countenance their options. The morality of the use of the weapons, whenever we begin its discussion, comes with one giant caveat, and that is, these weapons exist. They were put to use. They've had a horrible outcome that has been steeped in controversy and ambiguity since the day they were dropped. And when they were dropped, the war ended. And so, what are we to make of the world we have, we've shaped with these decisions? As mature Christians, we know it's our heritage entrusted to us by God to steward the goodness we have been given in our world. We also believe that God has given this to us as our work. We don't expect bands of angels to arrive to take the, the controls from our hands and shepherd us through our decision-making. What we do now, given what we know and how we live, is up to us. And we have the horror of these weapons now entrusted to us. We've made them, and they are ours. We have to live with them. The burden of their existence falls on the shoulders of those who first built them. Of course, the facts of atomic fission and the truths of chemistry are present for anyone to discover. But we also know there are many things yet to be discovered, but uncovering their truth and making use of their potential has much to do with the effort and the genius involved. Were it not for the investments in manpower and machinery on the part of the U.S., the bomb would not have been realized in 1945. It might not have been produced for a very long time after that. But it was built, and once built, it was there. Those who made it happen, from the government officials who supported vaguely worded descriptions of a new weapon, to the leaders of industry following the government contracts, to the cutting-edge scientists who, who sussed out the truth of the atom, all of them bear the burden of its production. But by far, the heaviest part of the burden falls on the scientists who worked to explore the truths of the atom and then turn those truths into a weapon. None of them were naive about what it would produce, at least potentially, and they all accepted the ultimate goal of their effort. In the U.S., many of them were propelled into action because they were already afraid the Germans had made greater strides and were far ahead of our own efforts. Their hesitations were conditioned and then conquered by their fear of what would happen with a Nazi nuclear device. And so they put their pacifism in abeyance, they got busy, and they produced the mushroom clouds over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Lately, a new movie has been produced describing part of this process. It's most notable in its focus on the person most generally described as the father of the atomic bomb, that is, Robert Oppenheimer. It's easy to go to the movie thinking it will be about him, and it's true enough the movie tracks the development of his passions and his thinking during the formative time. But it's actually a film seeking understanding of this man's personality, but also of the inheritance that he bequeathed us. The film, Oppenheimer, has been in theaters for some weeks now. It's much more than a story about one of the architects of the atomic bomb. It is instead a story of one man wrestling with his humanity in the context of making one of the most important decisions of the Second World War. Most of the descriptions of the movie I've read have missed its essential focus, which is too bad. If you want to go see it, go armed with the requisite knowledge. When dealing with an historical figure, the movie maker struggles to follow the actual course of events in the historical record. But this leads to some difficult decisions since there has to be a storytelling arc. As it develops, it should culminate in the focus or achievement of the character's life. 
The producer can't recount every part of the character's history or replay every major decision as the character will watch on the screen develops, but we have to have some insight into the range of options and challenges the character faces, or else we'd be dropped into a day or a year or a decade of his life with no way to understand who he is or what his struggles might be. Not only that, we also have to be able to fit the subject of the movie into some context. Since all biographical movies are set in the past, some window into the description of the place and times of the action there has to be opened. There must be some way to find out where we are in comparison to what's happening on the screen, even if it's nothing much more than to note that the cars look old and the dresses are longer than today. It helps us to relate to the storyline. At a minimum, it puts us in a relationship with the past and invites us to understand the character in comparison to the challenges and the realities of today. If the story is carefully and artfully told, we identify with the character and his passion, even if it's in the past and is surrounded by a world that appears completely different than ours. In a, say, 700-page biography, the author can afford to delve into the minutiae of a place or time so as to communicate to us a portion of the worldview and environment of its subject. In the biographical description, say, of Quanah Parker, for example, the author of the book The Empire of the Summer Moon, spent most of the book describing the history and culture of the Comanche tribes and its place on the Great Plains. Fully two-thirds of the work was set to stay, was set uh, was to set the stage for our understanding of the character and the challenge of how this last war chief of the tribe lived. In a movie, this background has to be woven into the story immediately and becomes the sort of background narration, or else the storytelling becomes a documentary. And thus, we have the premier challenge every filmmaker faces when he tackles a character from the pages of history. The good news, though, is that the possibilities of actual history are almost unlimited. True, pigs can't fly, the Roman legions don't carry muskets, and German emperors aren't going to give peasants the vote. But there's enough passion and surprise in actual history to satisfy the cravings of any storyteller. As long as the movie maker is able to carry his audience along and develop the character sufficiently to prick our interest in him and find an arc of story development sufficiently satisfying so the audience has a reason to keep watching, Historical movies can be enormously powerful. Many have become great works of art. The movie Hotel Rwanda or A Man for All Seasons and Schindler's List, they all come to mind. Each tells its story at its own pace and according to its own interest. But they all allow us to enter into the drama of the moment and walk along with the characters as their lives unfold. And so in this movie, Oppenheimer, we're dropped into the world of Robert Oppenheimer. He was the premier American organizer of the project to build the atomic bomb here. When the work was ramping up at the entrance of the U.S. into World War II, the inner workings of the atom had just begun to be understood. There was hardly any area of science more cutting edge than the breakthroughs being registered by the handful of scientists from all around the world who were rushing to unlock the secrets of the structure of the atomic nucleus. As the Nazi presence in German society began to make itself felt, and it became clear the European nations were being threatened by a resurgent German militarism, the fever of discovery reached even higher pitch. When war broke out, some of the openness in the research uh, and the scientific research began to flag, while at the same time, the minds of some of those most familiar with the physics involved began to predict the possibility of harnessing this breakthrough knowledge as a devastating weapon. 
and so began a drama in which Robert Oppenheimer stepped onto center stage. He'd been recognized as one of those brilliant, unexplainable geniuses who come along in every generation that humble the rest of us. They are effortless in their capacity to grasp even the most difficult aspects of knowledge, and their restless minds can go from one aspect of life to another with ease. Many of them are great at math. They become brilliant scientists, insurmountable experts, linguists, and musicians, and all at the highest levels. There seems to be no way to predict their origin or their future or what they will contribute. He was one of these, and he seemed to be so much, he seemed to be so at the earliest age. As a very young college student, he was making great strides in studying physics. After he graduated, he traveled from one university to another to find the best instruction in the developing developing realm of atomic physics. And he made a name for himself in his thought experiments and leaps of imagination. There were many other geniuses who were fascinated by this window onto the world opened up by this new area of science. They seem to have gravitated to this field that combined wild imagination with mathematical rigor. Not only was he capable of integrating the newest breakthroughs in knowledge and understanding, but he had the genius to explain and enable this knowledge to be integrated into the other areas being explored and discovered. Some people have minds with laser focus probing deeper and deeper into a subject that becomes narrower and narrower. Oppenheimer could grasp the deepest speculation and the newest test results, but he also had the ability to integrate these monumental discoveries into a complete whole. In the course of his career, he was criticized for being a generalist, not focused narrowly enough, but that was most often an expression of jealousy from his, uh, about his capacity to understand and explain so much so well. And the fullest part of his genius was in bringing his brilliance to bear in achieving this project. Only someone with a suite of gifts he had been endowed with could have achieved such a thing as he did. At the end of the day, as it is portrayed in the movie, there was cheering and celebrating all around because what they had sought to achieve had been brought about. They were certain the war would end because of what they had done. But the movie Oppenheimer isn't just about the man and his work. It's also a presentation of the question of what such an inheritance leaves us. Because the man Oppenheimer was not an angel endowed with pure intelligence, free from the limitations of flesh and time, but was instead a person who wrestled with his humanity, even as he was holding the delicate discoveries of nature in his hand. As a man, racked by his doubts and bedeviled by his limitations, he didn't know what to do with what he had built, and he didn't know how to act with what he had endeavored to achieve. And this is the reason to go to the film and to watch it carefully. Robert Oppenheimer was set apart by the combination of gifts given to hardly any other man. But at the end of the day, he stood naked and afraid in the light of what he had done. And he sought to understand himself and the world he had created so as to make the world a better place. At the end of the film, we're left trying to decide whether he did or not. It's a film Uh, It's a worthwhile effort in filmmaking. It necessarily carries with it a great deal of exposition and explanation. I've been reading about the development of the bomb and the life of Oppenheimer for decades, so I know what the quick cut scenes at the beginning of the movie really mean. But I felt like I should have been explaining to the person next to me what, for example, Oppenheimer's time in Holland meant or what it portended when he talked about going to New Mexico when he was a graduate student or when he met his girlfriend for the first time. And eventually the entire sum of the complicated network of his life. 
So I don't know how the first part of the movie would be for someone who doesn't know a good deal about his life already. But after about 30 minutes, the movie settles into a more or less straightforward narration of the story, pursuing the making and using of the atomic bomb. I think it's a story artfully told. I also think it delivers the reality of the questions and difficulties in a truthful and ultimately meaningful way. I'd love to be able to watch the film in a room of adults and have the chance to talk about the world we have received because of this man's work. Now, God has not abandoned us. We are inevitably a part of our times, and there is no escape from the truths of the past. What has happened has happened, and we are time's children with all of the features and aspects of what has given us birth. And in the challenges, we are bequeathed, no matter their origins, we turn to the goodness of God and live in the challenge to, archi- to articulate and to understand the truths of our lives as we navigate through the Scylla and Charybdis of our place and time, which includes nuclear weapons. I take some inspiration from the comment by Clive James in his wonderful book, Cultural Amnesia. In writing about a minor physicist involved in the project of building the bomb, the author asked whether it was a good use of his time and talent. He concluded that, In a world in which sometimes the only thing possible is to do what you can to fight powerful weapons with other more powerful weapons, the only thing to do is what you can. Angels may not guide our thoughts, but perhaps they do guide our souls. Back in just a moment. final segment, Faith in Verse, of a poem today called To Us Seminarians. Many are called, few are chosen, he said, hoping to put our anxieties to bed and dispel the fears emptying our heads as we endeavored to go where we were led. Be not concerned. If you're chosen, then go. If not, by logical extension, then fro. Have no worries across your bows, now blow. Let your paralyzing indecision go. Because the call is firm for you, ever real, comes from the divine, is God's own blessed seal, before which we stand and walk, not scrape and kneel, that from the vaporous cloud life congeals. Lift up your head, go bravely now forward, unsheathe and brandish his new gifted sword, advance steadily all movement onward, and serve the will of your deserving Lord. That's to us seminarians.
great opportunity we have is that we do not live in the time of our parents and grandparents. Their life of faith was theirs. Our life of faith is ours. We also know that in this time in which we walk in the light of faith, that the Lord accompanies us. And so looking back over our shoulder gives us a chance to understand what direction we're going. But we have to look forward when we want to understand what it means to live our lives as the life of faith. That's what we do on Living Catholic. I hope that you can continue to join us in the weeks to come. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.